Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. We are live back. Coffee with the Johns Friday. I Fresh think, new uh, look. Or Got new chairs. Look at them. Oh. Like, More fitting. Uh, I'm looking at you. I was like, you look the same. <laughs> <laughs> I got a haircut. Come on. Uh, yeah. Um, welcome back, everybody. Last week, we took a little bit of a break. But we're back now. Got some interesting articles. I'm going to be talking about uh, a lot about real estate. I did a lot of research actually on unemployment and why is it that people are not going back to work and what's the the issue here? People are trying to hire and they can't find people and people are looking for jobs, but they can't find work. So did some research. Um, I came up with a uh, an answer that I enjoyed that I believe. I found accurate and I see why this could be an issue. So I'm going to be sharing that with you guys. And I uh, would love to see how, what you guys think about that reason for all of this. There, that's actually been a lot of topics. Uh, you and I've been having um, our contractors every time I come in, I say, well, here's another person that says they can't find anybody, can't find any work that's delaying us, delaying other people. Yeah. Like, very true. Yeah, no, employment, unemployment, all this has been uh, perplexing for a lot of economists. Everybody wants to blame, you know, the $300 bonus and all that. And it's like, yes, that's an easy thing to blame, but is it really the cause? Yeah. And those are the things that I kind of, through the research and the stats and everything, kind of found out that it seems like it may not be. But with that being said, we've had a... You know, very fun last two weeks, a lot of going on, a lot of new marketing, a lot of things uh, coming in. And I'm actually going to be talking to you guys about a new marketing strategy that I believe is uh, going to be interesting to generate leads that's going to be um, coming in before foreclosures do. So pay attention to that. But yesterday, you and I were talking about the lumber packages and the prices that we oh were getting. Oh, my God. So... Insane sixteen thousand dollars spread. What the hell is going on? I don't know. There, there's like, got to be something in that pack. I haven't broke them down. Like, so we're we're building a new build a house, and we finally have gotten through the plumbing, and we're get, moving on to buying our lumber packages. And I've sent it to three locally lumber yards uh, here in San Antonio: Builders First Source, Guidos, and MG. Everyone says, "Oh, those are the three big ones." Send everything to them. So I sent them all to them. Took me forever for one to get the quotes back because everyone's like, "Oh, it's just so busy. It's just so busy. It's so busy. We can't find help. We can't find help." So that I think that's going to be a reoccurring phrase throughout this entire cast this morning. Yeah. Um, it took me forever to get them back, and they started rolling in. First one came in forty-one thousand. So okay, like. <laughs> I had no idea what to base it off of because it's our first new build lumber package we've ordered. And then the uh, second one comes in and it comes in at, oh, what was it? Like 30, um, that one was 42. Sorry, it was 42. And this one came in at 26. Mm. Yeah, that's 16,000. Yeah, 26,000. I was like, what? Why is it weird? Because we had a conversation a week before. We're like, uh, I'm just like, yeah, when you get something like when you first moved here and you're like, you got a foundation bid for 50 grand and then a foundation bid for 8,000. And it's like, what's the difference? Yeah. Why is there big such a price difference? And I'm just like 41,000 to 26,000, like 42 to 46. Like, that's a big spread on a lumber package. Like, did somebody forget something? Is something being priced different? Something yeah. added? I don't know. And then the third one finally rolled in and it rolled in at 30. <laughs> I was like, okay, there's a price discrepancy of like 26 or 30. I can see that across an entire household of lumber. Yeah. But then 41,000 is like, 
what is this? Yeah. I and mean, then looking at the, uh, I mean, you can just see in the plywood differences, like in the diff, just, I think one, the lowest one to the highest one, there's a $2,000 difference just in the five eighths plywood that goes on your roof. And there's like 96 sheets or something like that's that. That's a big difference. Yeah. $2,000. It's a big difference. So what is your theory on what, uh, that level of discrepancy between one lumberyard and, uh, well, I think it is like when I just just looked at the plywood because I know as a plywood is uh, something recently that everyone's talking about. Like, and we all know plywood is just ungodly expensive, and so I, I was just comparing those things, and it was that like I said, like between ninety six sheets of OSB for the roof, or maybe it was fifty five. Yeah, it was fifty five for the ninety six for the sides, or the way around. I don't know, but just looking at that number and two thousand dollar price difference across that many sheets, like. It's not like we're talking a thousand sheets that you have a two thousand dollar difference. You know, you have two thousand dollar difference in ninety six sheets. Like, good lord, it's almost twenty dollars a twenty dollar difference a sheet here, yeah. and they weren't cheap. And like, I priced it out like Home Depot actually has the cheapest lump plywood prices, and so I think that is a big driver in there. Is that lump like? And you take that, okay, across all the things we need for a house, two by fours, two by eights, two by sixes, all kinds of different variations and lengths, clips uh, for the root, everything. It's like I could see, especially if I'm just looking at one light item and there's a $2,000 difference and I look at the siding for half inch and there's like a $1,500 difference, like, okay, there's 3,500 of the 16,000 right there. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, now multiple, that was just two line items across four pages of line items. So you kind of take that all the way across and it's like, okay, they're just very expensive. And that, and that's also what you and I were talking about is that like Home Depot, why are they the cheapest? Because they can afford to price lower because they're such a massive chain, such mm -hmm. a massive franchise. And they don't only sell lumber, they sell everything else. So they can afford to beat out the, their competition by pricing things lower. And I mean, we see that across all businesses like Amazon, Walmart, like Amazon, I was hearing how they were one of the biggest uh, proponents to raising the minimum wage above $15 because they know that mom and pop shops can't compete. Well, that was always the thing that when people were like, oh, Walmart's coming to town, but then everyone's like, it was a death sentence to small and pops, huh? to small communities because it would just kill every small business in like yeah. that service any kind of little thing in that community and it's like well now you just have walmart so now all those mom and pop businesses just went out of business all that commerce started and it just like was an anchor point to continuous decline in those little tiny communities yeah because like every little mom and pop shop was gone so where'd all those jobs go where all the commerce involved with those little things now it's like everyone just goes to walmart and walmart takes the money somewhere else to where your mom and pop shops selling trinkets inside the little small towns like where i grew up it's like that money stayed in that community yeah. But now it's being shipped somewhere else. Yeah, because the owners live there, their employees live there, so all the profit, everything stays there. Well, and then it somebody goes go and buys else. things. They go to one yeah. little shop, and then they walk past another little bakery shop. Well, I'm going to go into this shop too, but then once the little old trinket shop goes out of business, nobody's going to that shop anymore, so the bakery shop doesn't get the business they get anymore, so it's always kind of that thing. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that is capitalism at its finest, because you can make the argument, well, it drives out small businesses, but it keeps more money in the pockets of the people that need those products and services because they're now instead of paying ten dollars they can go buy for five dollars so that money stays in their pocket so it's kind of a catch-22 depending on what side of the how you view well, capitalism yeah like <laughs> i mean and it's just that is capitalism it's always going to correct it's always going to over improve under improve you know it but you can always count on it to kind of balance out at some points 
Um, with that being said, uh, how about we touch on some real estate first? You had some articles that you were talking about before we went live. So, uh, uh, okay. So yes, one quick one, Texas Supreme court extends the state program to help tenants avoid eviction uh, until October 1st. So state eviction diver- diversion program launched in response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been extended according to a new emergency order for the Texas Supreme Court released on Monday. The diversion program was set to expire on July 27th. The new order extends it until October 1st. Monday order also allows a judge to postpone the eviction for 60 days if a landlord has a pending application for the program on behalf of a tenant or if both parties say they're interested in participating and they're talking about the rental assist program. Um, so that is something that, and I think what it is, is it's taking them a very long time to get that money to prospective tenants and prospective landlords that are having issues. So they want to give it time saying, Hey, we don't want to evict people. And especially if a landlord's like, I need to evict this person, but now we're trying to work on this, uh, eviction aspect to get some of this relief form. Um, so I think that's why they're doing that. It's giving time for people to get that money into the system and into the hands of landlords and tenants. Cause it does pay rent and late payments for up to 15 months. Well, and, and it's also something that you and I always talk about is that as landlords, we don't want turnover, right? Like oh. everybody always makes it seem like the landlords are these greedy landlords. All they care about is their profit and all this. And if you look at it that way, that all we care about is profit Turnovers are not profitable for us. No. Turnovers cause sometimes that you got to go and do some touch-up work, do some paint, fix some things. It takes some time before you get the next tenant in there that's lost revenue, lost rents. It's not profitable. Nobody wants turnovers, right? So if we can avoid the turnover, keep the tenant in there, especially if they've been a great tenant. Like we understand hard times happen and we're here to help. Yes, you do have shitty landlords. Like you have shitty everything. But- overall, landlords don't want turnovers, No, right? So, I mean, this is good news. This is something that I believe a lot of us are going to, you know, luckily we haven't needed to, or we haven't had any issues, but definitely something that we can all take advantage of. So, the next article, I'm going to save the big one for last. So, (laughs) mortgage refinance fee dropped by regulators, lowering costs for home borrowers. Something that I was like, huh, because remember that controversial fee that they came out with, like, was it December last year? That extra half point thing mm-hmm. on all refinances? Yep. Well, they're doing away with it now all of a sudden, less than a year into it. And it's like, son of a bitch, like, what was the point of that? So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are dropping a fee on mortgage refinances that was instituted during the pandemic, lowering costs for borrowers, the Federal, finance, Federal Housing Finance Agency said Friday. Fannie and Freddie were charging lenders a half or 50% point basis fee for all loans that were delivered to the two mortgage giants. The COVID-19 pandemic financially exacerbated Americans' affordable housing crisis. Eliminating the adverse market refinance fee will help families take advantage of the low rate environment to save more money. Acting Federal Housing Finance Agency Director Sandra Thomas said in a statement, the fee was put in place just as the federal government instituted a massive mortgage bailout program at the start of the pandemic. At the worst of the economic shutdown, roughly 5% of Fannie Mae Fannie and Freddie borrowers were in mortgage forbearance programs, and as of July 13th, that 
share has fallen to 2.1%. In total, 1.86 million borrowers remain in COVID forbearance plans, making up 3.5% of all active mortgages. For FHA VA, the share is 6.2%. And for private label and bank portfolio loans, the share is 4%. Mortgage rates recently dropped and are now sitting near a five-month low. Applications to refinance jumped in the last two weeks. Mm. So... They're dropping that, obviously, that risk of the re- the whole reason why they even want to implement it doesn't, you know, wasn't really there, right? I mean, we saw that the risk and everything that we were worried about when this all happened, when it first started back in March uh, 2020, I remember you and I, we were like, oh, crap, and we had just made like a big purchase and everything. We're yeah, like, we just bought a house. Like, oh. was, we bought a house like on Wednesday and like they shut the state down on Friday. And it was like, like, did we buy that already? I'm like, yep. Like, like shit. <laughs> so well, I should cross fingers and hope that's yeah, kind of like what our, our motto that became uh, big in 2020 was. Uh, well, the only way out is through. So yeah, at that point, it's like, <laughs> well, here we go. Let's see how this works out. But now taking this into account, right? This is something that I've I see conversations throughout like certain Facebook groups, bigger pockets, and I love hearing when uh, people that haven't even been in the market for a year uh, have strong opinions about it. But what are your thoughts on the market starting to cool down, right? I, we're seeing this. I'm hearing this and reading this from a lot of people. They're saying, yeah, yeah, we're starting to see the market cool down. We're not seeing as much buyer demand. We're, we're going to start seeing now prices stable off. Everything starts stabling off. What do you think about that? Hey, podcast Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information Things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. I mean, there, I think there's some truth to it. And you do see it where application for mortgages started or I mean, they had been falling and stuff like that. And um, but we are getting to the time of the year where like things do start cooling off. Like July is the hottest month for closing, which means June is the highest month for contracts. Right. So you do start seeing things start cooling off and stuff like that. And then when we are now into the 12 month period to where it's like, hey, our price is going to continue to rise because the last June, July, August last year is when this whole thing kind of started with prices really going up and absorbing a lot of inventory. So um, I do think it's starting to cool, but I think it's also a sense that a little bit of like seasonally adjusted. The aspect where it's like, well, yeah, we're moving into the cooler part of the season, but it's also like prices have been astronomically high and they've just gotten so high to where I have seen several articles that saying that the market is kind of starting to cool off a little bit as far as applications and pending home sales and things like that. And, but it's also, it's starting at such a low number that it's going to take a minute for that inventory to rise to a point oh. to where it's like, Hey, things are kind of leveling off as and, far as and that that's, goes. That's kind of what my thoughts are when people are saying this is that yes, we might seem like we're starting to quote unquote cool off compared to how insane it's been, but I don't think we're cooling off at all anytime soon. I mean, I think that demand is still there. 
we are still seeing so many people from other states. The more we keep going, the more they're trying to leave those states. And these are issues that we're going to be talking about uh, what's leading to the unemployment issues. But we're seeing people leaving states. We're seeing demand for housing. We had a housing shortage before the pandemic hit. This created an even bigger housing shortage, especially in Texas and places like Florida and stuff. So the housing shortages are not going away and we're not making up what we need to be making up per year. So that's not going away. What's going, what I think is cooling down is just all that initial like hype of the market's opening up, you know, let's go buy houses. Let's yeah. go do You know, that, that whole urge is kind of dying down a yeah. little bit, but I don't see this. Cool well, there's like there was market fundamentals that were driving people to some of these states before yeah. the pandemic started, and this just made it even worse. And now it's with the thing like now lumber prices are starting to come down. A lot of yep. builders were like, "Hey, we're not building prices houses at these prices." And now we're seeing like I was just I was telling you when I was going to check one of our projects downtown. There's a rail yard just north of uh, the Dignity neighborhood, and I crossed over bridge on New Braunfels, and there was like five or six trains, at least a half mile long, just all lumber. Yeah. The entire trains were just all lumber. And I saw a picture, a video online of like, uh, was it like somewhere on the Northeast coast, like some big shipping yard over there and it says, y'all are wondering where the lumber's at. And he was taking a video. And I mean, it was probably eight to 10 stacks high as far as, as far as the eye could see just everywhere. Just lumber, 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 lumber everywhere. So I think that's another thing that's going to start really balancing these things out over the next year is now these prices are starting to come down. We're seeing that, uh, hitting the real people building it, not your future contracts. And it's going to take a few months for those to really kind of fall down. But now there's going to be a huge amount of lumber hitting the market and builders are going to start picking up and start building houses to feed this inventory. So cooling off, what's cooling off? Your 20% year over year appreciations. Right. That's what's going to be cooling off, which that needs to cool off because like you can't have prices continuing to rise at that exponential rate. Otherwise you are going to cause significant problems. And several people have talked about it, yeah. that they're concerned about how fast housing is rising in price. Not saying that like, Hey, it's like bubble territory. Cause there's some better fundamentals. These are better credit worthy people. They don't have the liar loans like they used to back in two. 2005, six, seven, leading up to that last crash. But it's one of those that's like, you just can't have prices continue to rise and, that fast. And that's really key. What you just said is that the people that are buying these homes can actually afford them. Yeah. The people that are overpaying, they're coming out with cash. Yeah. So in theory, the loans are still safe. It's just that the people may be underwater on the home, but it's cash that they already put out. So they're not necessarily underwater on a mortgage which causes a financial crash right like they put out the cash out of their own pocket to make up that difference to overpay for the home so i think it's a different kind of thing people can afford it and one another i thought that i have is that you have lumber prices are starting to come down but i don't think we're going to see cost of housing come down i think the houses are set these new highs and that's the comps now they are the comps so I don't see builders now building houses and because lumber prices came down, they're going to say, oh, we're actually going to go ahead and sell this house for less than what we, you know, than what we build it for because lumber prices came down. Like because of demand, because of everything, I don't see prices coming down anytime soon. Well, one thing that they need to do in order for prices to come down is like you have to have an over, you have to think basic economics, like you have to have an oversupply of homes. And now competitors are competing against each other to bring price. It's like who's got the lower prices? They're competing for, they have more inventory than people buying. Like you got a long ways to go before that happens, unless all of a sudden buyers just 
quit and stop yeah. buying, which is like, that really doesn't happen unless there's like a really big financial economic issue driving that. Cause there's a lot of people that have put off buying new homes, selling their homes because of these issues. So that is something that, uh, I think we would see if that is what happens, we'll see, we'll see that coming. Cause it's not like it's, um, when we look at the lumber prices, perfect example, where the futures just dropped off. And now over the next like three months, you're going to see prices go from $50 a sheet down to 20, down to 40, down to 30, down to 20, well, and just like really fall And, and we're going to see places like Home Depot, like Lowe's, the big where the big box stores, um, they're going to be the ones primarily driving those costs. Oh, down. I mean, because uh, like you said, like a plywood at Home Depot is so much cheaper. And these lo- other lumber companies, they're going to just have to start cutting their losses on whatever lumber they did yeah, buy well, at higher it's not, prices. It's not like they're just barely cheaper either. Like between those like four companies that are so adding home depot into the where looking for lumber plywood alone when i was just looking at it it was one place was like the highest one was like on damn near 70 dollars a sheet and then the next one was like 49 and the other one was like 42 and then home depot was down at 36 huge so like you're talking like almost half price and like it's not like you need like a few sheets of it to no. build a house like that was like those were the single line item that had the highest cost was our was our plywood packages of of all those quotes so now it's like yeah i'm gonna eliminate those from these stores like i'm not gonna go buy that many sheets now the problem where they're still selling those are is to your big builders because they don't need a hundred sheets they need five thousand sheets which home depot can't supply that we can go to build one house two three four houses yeah. but when your big builders need that stuff there's only so many lumber yards uh, that can supply that and i'm also sure that those those companies are all the lumber mills are selling it still at a lower discount to some uh, some builders are buying five thousand sheets versus us that are buying you know a couple hundred for a house yeah. or so you know and plus i doubt these guys that are buying the five thousand sheets are buying from your retail lumber mills they're probably going like to the actual mills and doing some shit from the source i i heard man i'm trying to remember who was the builder but there's uh builders that they go they buy their lumber from where home depot buys their lumber you know but yeah you're building thousands of homes yeah. across the country because like home depot says oh we need ten thousand sheets of plywood distributed across all these stores exactly kb goes and says we need a hundred thousand sheets to distribute across this region yeah. so they can kind of do stuff like that to where that that's but now going back to like the housing aspect like yeah. housing has such a long lead time that it just it's going to take a long time for that amount of inventory and it's also like leading into it they got people to build the houses too yeah and every trade that we've talked to there hasn't been probably a single contractor of ours that we work with that has not told me that they're having problems finding people to work and just the cost, the prices they're paying. He's like, one of them, he's like, I'm paying my guys $200 a day to dig holes. That's it. Wow. It's like, they're making 50 grand a year. It's like, all they do is they show up, they dig a hole, they move some concrete and they're gone. And he's like, I can't find people to stay working. He's like, I can hire them, but they'll come. Ah, it's too hard. Or you start too early. They always have an excuse. Or it's like, they just don't want to do it yeah and uh, like it's been across like one of our, our granite uh person we use she was usually normally like she came and measured within that week we had granite it's taking her three weeks to get the granite and she's like i can't find people to work and then when i go to the supply houses they're short on uh slabs of granite because they can't find people to move the granite around so it's like it's across the whole thing of like who's not working why are people not working well I told you, John, we're going to hit that topic. Okay. Well, anyways. All right. Well, <laughs> move on to the next thing. So that's why I said it's going to be a reoccurring topic. Yeah. 
Um, and then talking about lumber, home buyers aren't seeing savings from falling lumber prices, and here's why. The price of lumber on the futures market has been given up all of its gains for this year, falling by more than 50% in just the last few months. Home builders, home buyers, and homeowners looking to remodel, however, are not seeing savings yet. Now demand for remodeling is falling as people spend more money on vacations instead. Home builders are seeing strong demand. Home buyers, oh yeah, sorry. Home builders are still seeing strong demand, but they have slowed construction due to high costs. Sawmills have gotten back online, but many are having issues finding enough labor. Low lumber prices are a welcome sign, but not really yet on the retail side. Lumber prices are still up nearly 100% from the spring of last year. The price of lumber packages quoted to home builders is still at record high retailers of uh, record high. Retailers, of course, want to buy their products low and sell high, so they're still selling the inventory they have at higher prices, despite what the futures markets say. Also, given soaring demand and supply chain issues, their inventory is low anyway and there is still demand so they have so they have no reason to lower prices but that will change in the coming months because you think about it like that that video of all that lumber okay so that lumber is here in the u.s but it's stuck in these shipping yards yep. they got to get that to lumber stores so you have massive amounts of lumber just sitting here but it's like we don't have the truckers to get the tr- get it anywhere. Yeah. So like we can't get anywhere. It's like it's here. So that's like, yes, the futures market's dropping off. And that will trickle through the economy eventually. But now it's all coming down to retailers paid those prices back in May for this lumber. And now it's at their store from those prices. So it's going to take several months for those prices to work their way down. Yeah. So uh, a guy um, who is the... Director of Specialty Products at Sherwood Lumber, a national wholesaler and distributor in Palmer, Massachusetts, uh, says we are still in price discovery mode. He, they buy from mills in North America and Europe and ships directly to its consumers. Goodman said they are just now seeing a lot more product coming to the market. Everyone is going to try to hold on as long as they can, but the market is going to find its way. Maybe in the end, maybe in the end, the price is higher because of inflation, but we are definitely in a housing boom Housing boom now that doesn't seem to be going away, says Goodman. While the price of softwood lumber is coming down, the price of other products like oriented strand board OSB, plywood, which is a type of engineered wood product used for panels, is up 325% year over year and 500% from free pandemic levels due to supply chain issues. So it's exactly that. Like They can make it, they got to get it somewhere. So there's it's labor shortages up and down the entire supply chain. So the last real estate market that our article I found was something that I found very interesting that we've kind of been talking about is how Biden's neighborhood homes proposal impacts real estate investors. Now, I'm going to take a drink of water real quick. It's kind of a long article. Yeah. Well, kind of going back to what you were saying uh, with that lumber article, the that's what we were talking about before when people say, oh, you know, this is happening to that sector or, or these people. That's not my problem. How everything is connected. Now the supply chain of people not working, truckers not being available, hurts deliveries from happening, which causes other prices Whoa. to go up because now they don't have the goods. So what goods they do have, they got to price up. So well, it's can- also sort of things like everyone's fighting for labor. Yeah. To like. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the lumber market. They don't have to worry about that. Yeah. But how does that lumber or how does your pro- your produce get from the distributor to you? It comes via truck. Well, yeah. if they're sucking all the truckers into the lumber industry to move lumber around, 
that affects you. Yeah, it's not like you have... No, these are lumber truck drivers. No, they're, they're just truck drivers. They can do truck driving for any industry. It doesn't really matter except for hazardous materials. You've got to have your permits. But, yeah. you know, you can do your truck driving for any industry. So, like you're saying, if the lumber industry takes up all those truck drivers, now groceries and the food industry and stuff like that, they're going to start seeing a spike because now it's like, well, we don't have truck drivers to deliver food. So, everything affects it all. So It does. It does. So, this, another, this article is like, how Biden's neighborhood home proposal impacts real estate investors. So, it's one thing we've been hearing for quite a while of what the Biden administration is going to do for the affordability crisis and things like that, or home buyer or down payment assistance and things like that. And we always talked about like, well, not going to help the industry. Cause like you just add the buyer, more buyers being able to buy, that's going to jack prices up. You need supply of homes. You need homes. Yeah. And that's what they talked about in this article. It's the first time I've actually heard about them doing this. So this article follows a lady out of Atlanta that's um, flipping houses in her hometown of Dayton, Ohio. With years of experience. Yeah, she started doing it in 2020, and so <laughs> she knows what she's doing. Uh, McCormick's real estate, her name is something McCormick's, uh, McCormick. So McCormick's real estate investing strategy and its outcomes in, in underserved Dayton neighborhoods represents a micro a microcosm of what a new tax credit proposal from the Biden administration designed to encourage across the country in similar neighborhoods, dubbed the Neighborhood Home Tax Credit. The proposal is part of the larger American Jobs Plan legislation also known as Biden's infrastructure plan. The tax credit goal include attracting private investment in the development of affordable homes and bolstering home ownership rates for low and moderate income home buyers in underserved communities, according to the White House fact sheet. The tax credit is structured to incentivize the type of homeownership pr producing development that McCormick is doing, but on a larger scale, according to Julia Gordon, president of the National Community, Community Stabilization Trust, NCST. NCST strongly supports this legislation, which is different from other real estate development incentives because it is reserved for home ownership only. Our organization has worked on it for about five years now, and we manage the and we manage the goal, large coalition that has been supporting its passage, Gordon said. The goal is to support rehabbing or constructing homes at scale so we could potentially see comprehensive community revitalization projects that affect 50 to 100 or even more units. So this is targeting. They have to be sold to homeowners. They have to be bought and resold to homeowners in order to qualify for these things. So it's not like investors can go in there like, oh, I'm going to tax credit for fixing up these crappy houses and I rent them out and now I make it. No, it's got to be sold and put back on the market for homeowners. Properties in underserved census tracts will qualify for the tax credit, which will go on to help cover losses that developers might experience when investing in these areas. The White House estimates about one in four census tracts are underserved, defined as those with poverty rates that are at least 130% of the area poverty rate, have a median family income below 80% of the area median family income, and have median home values that are lower than area medium home values. The Neighborhood of Homes Coalition, the coalition led by NCST, in support of the proposal, has created a map showing 
which census tracts qualify. So we'll show a link to this article in the show notes, and you can actually go into this article, and it shows a map of the United States, and it has like little bubbles all over the place of like how big a percentage of these census tracts are talking about qualify for these kind of things and where they're kind of at. And it, it's really kind of shocking to look at, like heavy concentration in the Northeast, the Rust Belt, and surprisingly, like a ton down in Florida. Texas, not so much, but it was just kind of crazy to see the discrepancy in some of these things. So purchasing properties in underserved neighborhoods alone won't allow developers to qualify for the tax credit. They also need to sell the rehab properties to be to eligible home buyers, presumably lower occupants, although the proposal does doesn't explicitly specify that for an affordable price point. The proposal defines that affordable price points as one that does not exceed four times the area median family income. Additionally, properties must be sold to buyers with incomes not exceeding 140% of the area's median family income. So that is something that I think is like, okay, now you're addressing the problem with this. It's like adding more buyers to the housing market is not going to do it. The need and lack of homes coupled with the down payment system. Now that is a two prong solution to the problem we're having to increase home ownership and get more affordable housing on the market where it's like, Hey, Mr. Developer, I know these areas are risky. Um, they don't do well. Like we're going to provide incentives and tax credits, which it's not. And like tax credit is a dollar for dollar off your taxes right. and you can get money back via that route. So as long as you can withstand a year of taking some losses, you can recoup that stuff, uh, later on in See, the tax bill. And one thing that I, I find funny with all this, like comes to mind is uh, i think it's great I, I do think it's good that they're doing this but it just brings up always that stigma that investors are to blame for high home prices and everything like that right but like what we always said if there weren't reasons in the market for us to be there we wouldn't be there it's really that simple. And what are the incentives that they're giving us right now? <laughs> I mean, they're giving people incentives to go to these areas where poverty is high to rejuvenate, revitalize those areas. What is that going to do? It's going to cause gentrification, right? Because as you renovate, sell homes, they're going to sell for ha higher values. Each home sold is going to sell for slightly higher than the last one. Next thing you know, everybody's complaining about gentrification. Well, and So it's like... What you can't have it both ways, right? Well, um, I'm just going to call you cap model, ever uh, <laughs> capital asset pricing model, cap model. All government affordability, uh, quote affordability assistant programs will accelerate home price increases, and that is what it'll do. And they even talk about in the article like the percentages of what homes sold. They had some graphs in there, like what these houses were bought at for what they were sold at, and all of them were 100 percent over the. Uh, average asking prices yeah. for the area. So, but they look, but they spun the article saying like, but this does help the people that are wanting to move because it does increase home values. So it is exactly that. It will increase home values because that's what it's designed to do. And it's going to allowing people to enter these programs. That's why they're giving these down, down payment assistant programs. And it's going to increase these lower income areas because it's not worth somebody to buy a house for 25 grand put $65,000 into it when it only sells for 90 grand. Yeah. And it's like, no, you need to have to be able to sell these things for profits and absorb losses. Cause I mean, perfect example, you look at, um, East and West of downtown San Antonio compared to 15 years ago to now. Yeah. It's like those houses, you couldn't do anything with them. It took a long time for that to really trickle into those values to make it worth uh, investing in. So this is the government getting behind them, but it's exactly what it's going to do. It's going to drive prices up in those areas, but it's also 
making those houses worth something to those people that do own in those areas because that's what home ownership is designed to do is build wealth over time. And they have to take the bottom and subsidize those losses so people do invest in those things and bring those home prices up. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll take too long for the uh, market to do it in itself. Well, and another thing that we are still not seeing, and this is a point that you and I brought up before, is that you need to get rid of that FHA 90-day rule, right? Because what happens in, those, in all these areas when you're renovating, you're doing all that? Everybody that's coming in with conventional loans, with cash, with all that, beats out FHA buyers every day of the week because FHA buyers got to wait 90 days before they can submit an offer on a house that's been flipped, that's been renovated. So in these areas that you're encouraging renovations, flips, and things of the sort, you're also hurting any of the people that can afford, that would possibly want to be able to live there. And by the time they can get there, all they have left are more expensive homes. Because the ones that were sold at a cheaper price at the beginning were being picked up by conventional buyers and cash buyers. So I believe, you know, I'm, I might be wrong, you know, it doesn't happen, but hey, um, <laughs> I believe that, you know, we have, they have to adjust this FHA rule because that 90 day uh, limit, that 90 day rule, I think hurts FHA buyers. And in they're a, the ones that can't afford housing. In, in a hot housing market environment like we're in right now, it's like for sure, because now it's like, Used, we used to buy houses and we'd sit on them for 90 days. Yep. And before we we time it to where our rehab would end it on 90 days and we can get on the market around that time. And that means, but we borrow money and have to pay interest at high interest rates for two months to withstand that. So we're like, now it's like, man, I don't care about FHA because I know I'm any conventional buyer. I'm going to fix it up as fast as I can, throw it in the market and it's gone. So FHA people, like, they have no opportunity to buy these quote-unquote renovated fixed up homes they have to buy somebody from like a homeowner so it's yeah. uh well so what do you think should i talk about that new marketing strategy people should be jumping on uh to generate leads here in san antonio Which one or is that? should i get into the unemployment topic what's your marketing strategy i oh, want to know real estate unemployment uh, what do you guys think marketing right. marketing I like Mark. So, do you? I don't. Here's an opportunity that I see coming up. Um, San Antonio water system will start shutting off water again this fall. San Antonio customers who had trouble paying their water bills through the recent pandemic will have to catch up before the water disconnection service begins this fall. The San Antonio water system will start disconnecting water when the moratorium ends in October for customers with unpaid current or past bills. Board members discussed at the July 13th meeting. However, customers who enroll in a payment plan will be excluded from service disconnection. The utility will also start assessing late fees and accounts in August. So they're not shutting it off until October, but they're going to start assessing late fees starting August. But there will be no retroactive assessments. So SAWS representatives report that a June meeting that there were over 52 thousand delinquent accounts Fifty-two thousand delinquent accounts all right guys listen in let that sink in the goal for saws is not to cut people uh cut people off says uh gavino ramos vice president of communications and external affairs 
It's to put them on a payment plan so that we can help partner. We can help partner with them on paying their back bill. Uh, there are three, six, and nine month plans. But Ramos says that he understands it may take longer for customers to catch up. We also ask uh, is they give us a call. The Sauce Uplift program will put customers in touch with state and city partner agencies to provide financial assistance. So here's where I see the opportunity, right? That they are, they are offering a payment plan. The payment plan is only three, six, or nine months of a, of a payment plan. 52,000 homes delinquent. I imagine that there's quite a number of them that need much more than nine months. So they say you can reach out and the SAWS Uplift program is going to put you in contact with somebody in the state of city to try to help out. We've already seen it and heard it from people that when they do, it takes months. Sometimes they don't hear back. During this whole time, they're starting interest in August and they're going to start shutting off water in October. That's not a very long time. You know, so now you have people that are getting their water shut off. That's a main necessity. When people are getting their water shut off and they can't afford to pay their water bill. I mean, these are people that are really struggling. I mean, you're, on, you're really on the fringe if you can't afford your water bill. Because yeah. like, water's not that expensive. Yep. As far as like overall bills of operating and owning a house or living. So like your water bill might be what? 40 to $70, depending on it. Yeah. Like, it's not a whole lot that man, if you're really skimping on your water bill, like, man, you really, really, you're, you're hurting your inner, you're in your like well, bill. And that, is, that was when I read this, that was my thing. Like why, you know, to me, it's a huge opportunity because there's just like foreclosure. Like when we talked about the, the foreclosure crisis that's coming, right? What do we see is that there's people that are one, they're not even going to know that they can reach out and do a payment plan. Right. There's people that are completely unaware and not just unaware, but they they don't even do the research to see, hey, is there any help for well, this? So all these people, that's where investors come in yeah. as investors. The good kind problem. We call us problem solvers, problem solvers. There you go. That, that we're going to put down our resume. We, I saw that <laughs> on somebody's resume for a pitch. I'm a problem solver. That's a good resume. Um, but Good real estate investors are going to do this for homeowners. They're going to reach out to them. They're going to see that you're on the water shutoff list. Hey, did you know there's a payment plan? Did you know? Why do we do that? Because a lot of people are saying, get out of here. No investor is going to do that because you want to take the house. You're greedy. No, because at least for us, we want to help them out. Because if there's a way to help them out, guess what? That tends to bring us more business later. Yeah. Right. And if... Chances are, just like foreclosures, if they fell behind before, there's an underlying issue that's much bigger. Because if you fall behind on paying your water bill, I mean, you are having issues paying damn near anything else, right? Let alone your mortgage, let alone anything else. Well, I mean, so, or just a tenant, somebody that's just renting the house, like water being turned off for them too. And the landlord, like, it's like, hey, do you know uh, your tenant's had the water turned off because exactly. the property shows up on this house? Where it's like, it's easy to do. Like, you look it up and then you just the address and you see it's an absentee homeowner. Like the homeowner doesn't know that like, Hey, my tenant just had their water shut off or like, Hey, uh, you might be having a precursor here to having a problem here. Cause your rents thousand dollars a month and yeah. your tenant can't afford an $80 a water bill. Like you're eventually going to roll over and start having problems. So let me ask you too. The, the, let's say in a situation like that, right? The tenant didn't pay the water bill. 
they shut off the water. Whatever happens, tenant leaves, gets evicted, whatever. Does the landlord need to come in and take care of that water bill? What happens with that water bill? No, I mean, it's attached to that previous tenant because eventually they'll shut the water off. And when the person comes back on and says, hey, I need to turn water on at this service, my name is gotcha. John and the person's name was Steve. It's like yeah. they're not going to they're going to go after Steve continuously to try to collect those back payments, but they're not going to attach it to the house. <laughs> OK, all right. I, I honestly I mean, well, know. I, guess, I was curious I guess, about that. I mean, I can't but, say that for certainty, but I'd say like, I got a 95 percent at like. But if you guys, that's how it happened. If you guys don't understand like the gold that this opportunity is, I mean, you're not listening. You know, this is an opportunity that like even John brought it up. Like you want to niche down the 52,000 people that are behind, start looking for absentee landlords, uh, absentee homeowners. Because now you have absentee homeowners, like you said, that have tenants that are back on, uh, are falling behind on their water bill and they might get their water shut off where it's like now they have a troubled tenant. That tenant, if they couldn't pay their water bill, chances are they haven't been paying their more, their rent either. I mean, you start thinking through this as an investor, there's a huge opportunity here for problem solving. Yeah. There's a huge opportunity. And this is a precursor to foreclosures. I mean, you want to know which properties are going to be in foreclosures? Again, they haven't been paying their water bill. Mm -hmm. Chances are they haven't been paying their mortgages. So let me know in the chat. Let me know in the comments. What do you think about this strategy? Do you agree? Do you not? Are you confused? Or do you have questions about it? Let us know. Also, I'm going to try to find it, but we did an interview, remember, with uh, Rivar Report, uh, that they, they, they came out with an article oh, that was bashing investors saying that we were taking advantage of people on the water shutoff list. Yeah. And then you had... Uh, Nuremberg come out and say, "Oh yeah, it's completely disgraceful, it's predatory. You know, we need predatory. to fix this." Like, and one thing that I reached out to the um, Rivard report, the reporter, yeah, the person that wrote the article, and I told them, I was like, "Hey, you should try to get both sides to the story before you, you know you start bashing investors." So he sat down with us, and we told them, "We're like, you know how many people you reach out to that are on the water shutoff list, and you're telling them like, hey." If you're having troubles, like, and you need to sell your home, like, I'll buy it. Yeah. They're like, I can still sell it even though it doesn't have water. They didn't even know they can sell it. So they're over here living with no water, struggling, being in a ton of financial distress, mental distress, because they don't know what their options are. You understand? Are there bad investors? Yes. There's yeah. also bad doctors, bad politicians, bad believe reporter, it or not. Bad reporters. Bad, bad reporters. There's, there's a bad apple in every industry. So they're bad, yeah, bad people in every area. But the majority of us are actually good. Yeah. The majority we, of us, were actually here to help. Well, because I also think of investor or housing investors. It's like, oh, you're just slumlords. You're taking advantage. But like everyone thinks that. And that's why like you have, it, it sucks that you have to stop using the word like investor in pitches and things. Because like, oh, you're just trying to get a deal. You're trying to take advantage. Like, yes, yeah. we are in this for making a profit. But some of these of people, they, we, when we told the guy, like, think about it. It's like, if you can't pay your water, that means you can't maintain the house. Your foundation's probably bad. Your house is old, electrical roof, holes in the wall. Or you don't know who can sell it. No real estate agent wants to talk to you because like, ah, this house is crappy. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. But along comes an investor and saying, hey, I'll still buy you out from this house. You got a mortgage underneath it. I'll take care of that. To where if they don't have that option, they go into foreclosure. They hit, that hits their credit score. They, they go back. like they It's a downward spiral into poverty to where like, we're coming in and providing an option. It's like, hey, you can still buy out. And they're also thinking, 
if they can't take care of their house, it gets foreclosed on, it's in disrepair, and it sits there and is vacant and becomes a problem for rodents, becomes a problem for I mean, ice source, fire, uh, all kinds of things, which brings down the value of the neighborhood. Yeah. They're like us coming in and buying it means that we are now take the financial responsibility and the legal responsibility. We don't buy these houses and just sit on them. Well, some people do, Um, but we take it on and we buy it. We put capital into it because we have to provide by law a safe home for a tenant. Well, it's funny because. I had a mentoring session with somebody recently and we were talking about marketing ideas and I threw a bunch of them at him. He's like, man, honestly, like, how is it that you keep coming up with all these marketing ideas? I was like, cause you're not understanding what your job as a real estate investor is. Your job as a real estate investor, number one, is not necessarily to just make money. Your job is to think about what problem am I solving? That's the job of an entrepreneur, period. What makes a, an entrepreneur a successful entrepreneur is you're solving a problem that the world needs solved, right? That people need solved. The more people that you're solving that problem for, the more money you're actually going to make, mm-hmm. right? That which is why Bezos is one of the richest people in the world. So Thanks, you're man. you're sub, you're solving a problem. And like think about it that way. What problems are we seeing in the world today? What problems are we seeing in our city today? Affordability, or is that a problem? Uh, tenants not paying their rent. Is that a problem? Like what problems are we seeing and now figure out what could be a solution to that? Because wherever those problems are, there's an opportunity. You're just not thinking that way. You're thinking about, I just need a property to flip. Right. And it's like, okay, that's kind of like the end goal, but fall back a little bit. Yeah. What's the original problem? What, how can you generate that lead? How can you get well, that? Pro- and that's what house? we talk about. Like people got to get into real estate for the right reasons. Yeah. Or like if you're in it just to make money and you're looking at the wrong ways, like that's somebody that's in it for the short term. They're not going to make a career out of this. I mean, most, some people could change and realize like what they're doing, but most people get into real estate thinking, Oh, I can make a bunch of money. And after like, two, three years, four years, realizing how much work this is and the burnout kicks in, they fall, they tend to fall out. So, so that, that is definitely something that, uh, look, look out for. So I, I actually had an, uh, what do they call it? An epiphany this past week. So this John's pa- epiphanies, everybody hold you on, yeah. hold on your chairs. Yeah. Political correctness out the window now. Um, and no, just kidding. But I had an epiphany. I was thinking about, uh, I was reading the book atomic habits right? And excellent book. If you haven't read it, excellent book. But he talks about building habits and building all that. And it kind of triggered something on me. It was like, why is it that people that when they make a a goal, right? New Year's resolution, oh, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape. Uh, I'm going to start investing. I'm going to create my savings. I'm going to do all this, right? Why is it that they fail? And the reason I believe they fail is because they have a goal of I'm going to lose 15 pounds. Okay, maybe you lose 15 pounds and then you're like, yay, I hit my goal. Then you gain 15 pounds, if not more. So you're like, what the hell happened? The question you need to be asking yourself is not, you know, how can I lose 15 pounds? But how can I become the person that is 15 pounds lighter? Hmm. How can I become the person that's healthier, that works out more? Right? How can I become the person that's always saving, that's always investing? How can I become the person that can generate their own deals, that can become a full-time real estate investor? Not how can I get my next flip? How can I become a person that's always investing in real estate? Because when you shift that, I think that when you shift that mindset, 
you don't only lose the 15 pounds, but you keep it off and you get in excellent shape because your goal is not short term. It's long term goal. It's how do I become that person? Right. Yeah. Every time I always hear people that and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm not saying like, hey, this is everybody else. I'm the number one person with my short term goals and everything. But you say everybody says the same thing when they get into business. Oh, when when I make money, that's when I'm going to start saving. When I make money, that's when I start investing. What you don't understand is that the longer you wait, the more you're building a habit yeah, of not, not saving, it. of not investing. So that's where I think that was my epiphany this uh, this past week. Well, I mean, it is, it's it's very true because everyone looks at the person is like, oh, look how great they look. Look how fit they look. Look how this is like, like I want to look like that. It's like, well, to look like that, you have to live the life that they're living. It's like, what happens to that habit? It's like, they don't go eat ice cream before they go to bed. They don't. They, they, they go to the gym regularly. They constantly do the things that, um, that's why I'm so buff. <laughs> there you go. So, um, but, he's not you know, laughing at you. He's laughing with you. Um, but, uh, yeah, the comment was just funny. Uh, that is true. I mean, yeah. for sure. And it's like, even like a real estate investor, it's like, what do the successful people do? What is like the wealthy people do? Like, oh, well, they have money so they can invest. Like, Warren, but like, was it like 80% of millionaires are self-made millionaires? Yeah. Like they didn't inherit wealth. Like what were the habits that they started doing? And there's numerous books. There's numerous things that just create, like where they say, like, just start with 10 bucks a, a week, a month, whatever it is, and get in that habit of transferring money over. And then over the course of a year or two, you start yeah. seeing the benefits of that and you start compounding it and really growth. But you have to understand why it is and want to actually do it. Not just do it because somebody said you're doing it. You have to understand why you're doing it, what the reason is behind it. So you're not just like, otherwise you'll just fall off. Yeah. You won't pay attention. If somebody's telling else telling you to do it or you have a short term goal or something like that, you, you're just not going to do it. So when it comes oh. to real estate, it's like you got to get in the habit of realizing like, this person has a problem. I need to figure out how I can solve it. But then at the end of the day, like money does have to come from it too. Cause you have to yeah. live your oh, life. For sure. And, and that's, so I wanted to share a personal story, right? So cue the sad music, um, <laughs> bring out the violence. But this past week, uh, it's the first time I've ever burned out. Right. I, I'm, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, it was beyond. Those other people were just lying, talking about. Yeah, I, I was like, me. you pussies, you just complaining about this. Uh, but anyway, I, I hit that level and I was like, it was scary because I mean, my I, like I would read things, but I wasn't comprehending what I was reading. Like it was beyond insane how my brain was just like, nope, I'm done. Um, so it, it was pretty crazy. It was kind of scary. Um, but one thing I realized was that's where it came from is. I realized my habits. So I had a habit of being in survival mode, right? I mean, people know, you know, I grew up as an immigrant in this country. So we didn't, we were always on the edge of like any minute now we could get deported for whatever reason, right? So we can lose everything. So you're always kind of working in survival mode your whole time. So I had that habit of always working in survival mode. That means that I have to do everything. I have to do everything right now. I have to hurry up. I have to work hard. I can't stop. I can't take breaks. I can't relax. I can't enjoy things. Not realizing that I'm already a citizen. I mean, I, I don't think they can get me out now, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a citizen of this country. So that's great. Our business is doing pretty damn well. Right. So we're doing very good. So we don't need that money. We, we don't need to work as hard like, hey, like we used to work that because we weren't going to eat next week. Right. So all of, but I kept those habits because I never took the time to build the right habits. 
And it, it came to a point where actually you say, so what's the problem with working so hard? That, that you worked so damn hard, it became counterproductive to what we were doing. Yeah. And it got to a point where we were no longer moving forward as fast. We were taking like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. We, like, we were moving very slow and that step back was always just hitting you hard. Right. Because you take that step back. You're like, what the hell? So well, then you, you double look, down. You look at it. It's like when you start out or we started out, it was like we had just like one thing is like find a house, find a buyer, make a spread in between so we can make money to eat. But now it's like we've expanded our business because like we don't like the show like this doesn't just happen overnight with no work involved. Right. All the social media, all the, the housing, the I mean, we were just doing wholesales. So now we have buy and holds. We have new builds. We have fix and flips. We have a number of different projects going on, number yeah. of different things, all the things that we want to do. And you go at it with that same mentality. It's like, I got to do all of them and work so hard at every single thing to where it's uh, like the analogy of like your jack of all trade master none it's like you're working at everything trying to do everything to move them all forward and none of them are moving forward and you're actually going backwards yeah. because like if it what's that saying if you're not growing you're dying kind of scenario where it's like i'm focusing on everything all at once doing all these projects all these things that i want to do at one time with all this work and none of them are actually taking the proper time yeah. to curate it to get it to really move forward to where it can sustain itself well, and then too, like you and I discussed, when we were starting off, a lot of those m multiple things that we, we were doing were actually pretty small things, right? They were things that we were doing a lot of multiple things because they could be accomplished within the day, within the week. So you can do a lot of multitasking because yeah. we weren't that big. It was just us. Yeah. Where now, like the projects that we're working on, the things that we're working on, they're actually things to set up systems, to scale a business, to go to other cities, to do more things, to uh, take in a lot more money. It's like, no, these tasks actually take more brain power. They take more time. They take more planning, more action, more curating, more, you know, taking care of than what we used to do, but the habits were there. The habits of yeah. just do everything at once and then realizing that's like, none of it is getting done. You know what I mean? Like nothing's moving forward. And then because nothing's moving forward and you're getting to a level, it's like you actually well, start moving backwards. Well, you get frustrated and you try to work even harder to make it all go move forward at the same time. And, and it's like, happens. it's a self-reinforcing circle down to the bottom of just, bah. Yeah. So I hope that helps you guys. Uh, my epiphany, I hope uh, that's something that resonates with some of you. But with that being said, let's get into the main topic, the main event. Oh, the Federal Reserve. Before we talk about the main event, did you watch the McGregor fight? No. Woo! I heard Whoa. about it. I saw the end of it. My goodness. That, that, that meme was all for the My the goodness. <laughs> So that fight, for those of you that did not watch it, I love UFC. I used to love boxing before it just became uh, uh, kind of like a just, I don't know what the hell it became. It was just beyond insane. It, it was just boring as hell to watch. UFC, I've been a fan of for quite a few years now. And Conor McGregor is, uh, was one of the top fighters in the UFC and is known for trash talking. And he talked so much shit to this guy. Uh, what was his name? Dustin Poirier? Poirier. There we go. I can always, yeah. I always forget his well, name. Well, this is like the third time they fought, right? Yeah. So this is that kind of, uh, it was a rematch. Like, a rematch of the rematch. rematch. Yeah. So this was, well, it was going to break the tie, I believe. So it was a big fight, big promotion, everything. He, McGregor went as far as like talking shit about uh, Poirier's wife 
and his family. I mean, like he goes, he has no rules, no, no limits. Just sa- oh, yeah. savage level of like shit talking. So, but what was different this fight though is I saw McGregor like actually come in like the old McGregor. Like he looked hungry for this fight. So I was like, I got excited. I was like, this is going to be a good fight. And it was. It started off, man. That thing was just, they were landing blows. McGregor had his ear cut like early on. I mean, this is all happening in the first round. What's funny is that Val doesn't watch these fights because she doesn't like violence and stuff like that. And but for whatever reason, she was up and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know. She just sat down. She's like, I'll just watch and see what it is. And what happens is McGregor. Towards the end of the first round, decides to throw a kick, hits uh, Poirier, and you can tell, like, you can see that, like, the way it landed, like, he threw a lot of power behind that kick. And when he brings his foot back to land it, the whole thing just bent at the shin, and it just bent out. Yeah. Oh, my God. I almost threw up. <laughs> yeah, you got a queasy stomach. Yeah, stuff when like I that. saw that, I was like, "Oh god!" Because he just stood back; that ankle just bent at, yeah. right at the shin. He landed all his weight on it, and then he yeah. just like falls back. And obviously, it was a technical knockout at that point because I mean they had to stop the fight. The guy has a freaking broken leg. Yeah. And what's amazing though, with the broken leg, with everything, he was still talking. Oh shit. man! I heard oh that, like, you're wiping my DMs, bro. I, I didn't yeah. see that going out like it was a tech or it wasn't technical they called it it was like doctor stoppage or yeah something like that and it was just funny how they like there's so many memes showing of like how he was talking trash like just poirier is gonna be leaving on a stretcher by the time i'm done with him and here then the next image was him leaving on a stretcher (laughs) rolling out i was like oh Oh, no it was it was beyond insane that was a crazy crazy fight uh i still think mcgregor would have lost because he was getting rocked that whole fight but it, it was it was insane. It was like, I said it was like a, some people that I know were talking about. I was like, it was actually like a really entertaining fight to where like, oh, yeah. like going out of, uh, out of the first round. It's like, who was really winning? Not really anybody. They were both landing some yeah. hella shots and both going hardcore at it. Yeah. And then like, yeah. And a lot of people were saying that McGregor, like he probably fractured it multiple times throughout that fight. Like oh he, yeah, he, missed, he, he was, had, he was kicking. Hard. He was yeah. kicking a lot, and they said some people thought like it was fractured before he even came into the fight. To where like he hit it, it injured it several times, and has well, that, a lot of hairline stress fractures. I, and then he, when he planted on it yeah. so hard, I just I find that to be very stupid. If that's the case, because I heard that before too that he had a, like a hairline fracture or something before coming in. So it's like if you did, why were you going so hard with that leg? Yeah, use anything else. Why did you go so hard with that leg? It is left leg too, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I think he's right-handed. So like, why were you using your non? Oh, he can switch up. So well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. But but, but anyway, it's a small little tangent. There it was just a crazy fight. Um, let's talk about unemployment and what it is that I found out that it satisfied my curiosity as to why we are not seeing the level of workers and everything. So satisfied your curiosity. I'm curious yes. about this. So let's start it off with uh, the sign outside a Lincoln, Nebraska Burger King was a little different. It said, we all quit. (laughs) Sorry for the inconvenience. So you had nine employees in Nebraska Burger King that decided to all quit at the same time. The manager, Flores, said that due to an ever-changing staff of district managers, 
her particular branch had been overlooked, leading to working conditions that included 90-degree temperatures in the kitchen, resulting in severe dehydration and 50- to 60-hour work weeks. Oh. Gloria said that her boss called her a baby. <laughs> That's insane that they actually did that. Uh, after the sign went viral on social media, her boss told her she was fired and asked her to have uh, to hand in her keys. Flores and Johnson, Johnson's another employee there, said that they believed other Burger King workers in the area were subject to similar treatment. So this is all going to be building up, just so you know, if you're wondering, like, what's this got to do with anything? Um, so it says uh, this next article was like pretty much why the tight U.S. labor market uh, is here to stay. So in a series of blogs posts last week, Commonwealth Financial Network Chief Investment Officer Brad uh, McMillan discuss just what's going on with the labor shortages in the U.S. So he says, okay, baby boomers. Uh, there were more jobs openings than workers to fill them in the U.S. economy prior to the pandemic. A long-term graph of number of job openings subtracted from the number of unemployed Americans reveals that the number of surplus jobs has been trending lower ever since the financial crisis in 2008 and dipped into negative territory back in 2018. One of the primary reasons for this long-term trend is that retirement of the baby boom generation in, is the retirement of the baby boom generation. In fact, the pandemic forced a number of baby boomers into early retirement since the beginning of 2020. So that's one of the factors. One of the factors that seems to be driving unemployment is that Baby boomers were pretty much forced to retire. Stock market has been going all-time high. A lot of baby boomers are depending, you know, on their 401k. Well, they, stuff they like learned that. their lesson in 2008 too, where like the baby boom generation were smacked by that and watched their accounts because they were nearing retirement. They're like, they're a lot of them were in their 40s and 50s, getting older, and they realized like, holy shit, I got to work a hell of a lot longer now, and my 401k what i'm depending on my retirement just went to nothing and now they're at all-time highs and they saw the whiplash of how fast it went down how fast it came back they're like okay i'm, I'm yeah. done so so you have all these baby boomers that are leaving the job market right and these are people that have the old habits of you show up you do your job you go home right that's it that's what they grew up doing that's what it was so now let's move forward a little bit and we have an, an article that was written by Nobel, oh, Nobel wow. winning poverty researcher on why people aren't going back to work. So for Esther Dufflo, a French-American economist at, and MIT professor who is the youngest person to receive a Nobel Prize in economic science, understanding the lives of the poor and how to design anti-poverty measures has been a professional mission long before the pandemic for her. On the road to economic recovery, uh, she says that gender inequality, unequal access to childcare, return to in-person work mandates, and vaccine access are among the many pressing issues surrounding return to work in the United States and global economic recovery. But when it comes to the debate over whether statewide unemployment benefits are responsible for workers choosing to stay out of the labor market, she says that economists such as herself aren't satisfied with an opinion not based on actual research. 
So state leaders removed benefits in hopes of solving hiring challenges for businesses. Uh, but Duflo in, is in agreement with many economists who don't think this is either the cause or solution for the country's tight labor market. And in a few weeks since state suspended benefits, it has not increased workforce participation. And in some cases, it hurt the economy by decreasing household spending. So there are still more than 10 million Americans enrolled in pandemic-related programs. And but she says unemployment benefits have people gave people flexibility and doesn't make people lazy. So I actually searched a little bit deeper and I saw that states that cut the benefits, um, including the extra $300 a week, about three months ahead of their September expiration, job searches were about 4% below the national average. And these states were Alaska, Iowa, Mississippi, and Missouri, which stopped paying for the federal benefits as of June 12th. Then you have activity is 1% lower in eight states that ended them in June 19th. People in those states are less likely to be searching than your average job seeker right now. You'd think they'd be searching more. At least right now, this does push back on the idea that federal unemployment benefits are the main reason for uh, are the main reason that the labor market has this kind of friction. So this was one of the first points, right? So everybody talks about the enhanced unemployment, the extra 300 being an issue. But all the states that cut them, they're not seeing a spike in people looking for jobs that you would have thought. You would have thought, hey, Shit, you know, this enhanced unemployment is running out. I'm not going to have this anymore. I better start looking for a job. That hasn't happened. You know what I mean? So that, that's what I found very curious. And I was like, what the hell is going on then? So, you know, over the years of being home, people having to have time to evaluate the pros and cons of long workdays and possibly antiquated work expectations. We're starting to see that the issue that's causing people to not go back to work is actually they're looking for more convenience than a paycheck. Before, and this is what I was getting to with the baby boomers, before, get a job because you need money to take care of your bills, live your, live your life. That's what it was, right? You would go to work, do your job to get that paycheck. You would go home. That's when you lived your life, when you got home. But now people are trying to live their lives in congruence with their work. They want to go to work and enjoy where they work. They want to be happy with their work. They want benefits. They want all these extra things. Flexibility. The flexibility. Yeah. They want all these things that most companies don't provide because they never needed to provide. All they needed to provide is like, hey, you do this job, you get paid this much. That is it, right? Now people are like, that's not enough. After being home, or, you know, since, May, since March and being paid to be home pretty much, a lot of people were getting more, some people were getting more than what they were even making at their job, just staying home. They started reevaluating. That's like, well, why the hell am I going back to this job that I hate doing for this kind of salary? And they started realizing, how can I lower my bills? How can I save some money? How can I, you know, maybe not spend how I used to spend, lower my expenses. Now I can wait it out a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Until I find that unique and job. And that's the, 
thing that has been very curious about. Like, it's interesting to see that data. Um, it's because it's the exact opposite to what it's also like, maybe that was giving those people like a lifeline to try to find jobs in between things. Yeah. Cause like 300 extra a week. Okay. So you're talking 1200 bucks, like on top of your normal benefits, it might be an extra thousand, $2,200 a month. It's like, you're not living a glamorous life on $24,000 a year. No, man. There, there were people that were making at a minimum, like three to four grand a month on, um, because of these benefits. Well, and, I'm uh, and that, also remember that prior to these 300, you were getting 600. Yes, I understand the 600 aspect, but you also had yeah. a huge gap where you weren't getting anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. The second half of like towards mm-hmm. the tail end of last year and then before these things really kicked in. Um, so I do know, yes, there were getting significantly more, but your unemployment insurance is based off the percentage of what you were making when you were laid off. Yes. So it's not like you get laid off and you get a maximum $500 mm-hmm. and then plus that on top of it. So you have to be making like 50, 60 grand a year in order to qualify for the extra $500 a week yeah. aspect plus the extra portion. So if you're making 60 grand a year, and all of a sudden, use that. So they're making sixty grand a year, and they were making two thousand a week plus this, so thirty two hundred dollars. So uh, thirty two hundred times twelve, they're making roughly thirty eight thousand a year. Yeah. So you went from making sixty to thirty eight, and you still have to pay taxes on that thirty eight. So it's a huge still drop in income aspect of it, but it's like so these people waiting out and I do agree with that because a lot of these job openings are your entry level restaurant jobs they are the hardworking jobs they are the jobs that you do have to go to uh, and you can't leave where they say child care is another issue if you have a kid what do you do with them it's like well I can't make my 60 grand a year anymore I have a kid and the only thing available is these little minimum wage jobs like what am I supposed to do with my kid yeah. So I think they start falling back on other social programs to where it's like, oh, like food stamps. They start falling back on these other things to where they did talk about, I have seen articles where the poverty rate and applications to a lot of other assistant programs has increased dramatically. Yeah. So where are they going to where it's like, hey, it's either between being home and raising my child or going to work. So then there's, I think some people are choosing well, to stay home. Like, I don't know. And then to, to that point, right? Childcare. Uh, this was an issue even before this happened, right? That we were seeing it more and more come up where women were, uh, they were very upset that the fact that it's like, you know, maternity leave wasn't long enough. Then we were seeing debates about paternity leave being available and, you know, women were scared to get pregnant because they would lose their jobs and all of these things. They were already an issue. This just magnified those issues because then schools shut down, which is schools for a lot of people is pretty much the free childcare that a lot of people need. Um, so you have the, the article continued. They talked about childcare and everything. And it says, as the U.S. federal government fights over the definition of infrastructure, many Democrats are pushing for funding that encompasses human infrastructure like childcare and paid leave in new legislation. So Dufflo said that U.S. is behind on childcare. In other developed regions such as Europe, childcare is viewed as a societal effort, whereas the U.S. pushes responsibility of childcare solely onto mothers. Uh, on top of the responsibility, Dufflo said that there is a push in the U.S. for people to work unnecessarily long hours, and women are then pushed further behind male colleagues if they cannot keep up because they need to raise children. COVID has resulted in a reevaluation of the balance between work and family, but it has not solved the big issues for professional women. 
This is a major hindrance standing in the way of women succeeding in careers. So this is another big issue, right? I mean, and we've seen it personally, you know, myself with my wife and Mike and our boys and everything. It's like, yeah, when you look at the options for childcare, if you want to send your kid to a decent childcare, right? Uh, you know, I'm not talking about like your very budget friendly childcare, but somewhere half decent. They're kind of pricey. You know, for one per for one kid for four hours a day, you're looking at eight hundred dollars a month. You know, and four hours a day, that's not enough. Like yeah. you need to work a full time job. So four hours a day is half. You still need another four hours of something so you're else. You're looking at sixteen hundred dollars, so yeah. fifteen to two thousand so, dollars. And then you you go take a job that maybe you're not making twenty five, three grand. Well, I mean, you know, we'll look at that. So that's after tax income. Yeah, that you got to make. So you got to say, let's just call it two thousand dollars on the high end. That's twenty four thousand dollars. Well, you take taxes out of that aspect. You got to make in thirty five grand a year. Like minimum wage jobs, even fifteen dollars an hour jobs. Like don't even like. I'm curious. What like what is fifteen hours? Uh, get you so the fifteen times forty times fifty two. That's only thirty one thousand two hundred dollars. Yeah. And then you minus your 20% of that for taxes, you're at 24,960. Essentially, you're trading like my kid's going to go to childcare and I'm going to go to work. Yep. All my money from that I'm getting paid at my job goes straight to the childcare. Or kid stays at home, mom stays at home, it's a wash. Mm-hmm. It's like also, it's rather do you want to spend time with your kid or I work? And well, it's like, and then, well, I'm going to stay going to work then. And then you look at it and like to your point earlier, well, then I might as well just do one of these government programs, right? I'll get on food stamps. I'll do this or I'll do that. That uh, gives me some assistance because sending my kid a childcare and getting a job is a wash. Then any little extra help I can get, it's all profit essentially, right? It's, yeah. uh, so, I mean, it's like not you- that they want that, but it's like they don't have the options, right? So in the, I had an article in here. I, I was trying to find it, but it was a few weeks ago and I just weren't getting to it but you have like these big banks in new york city and everything they're saying that there's no more question you must come back well, to chase, work chase said that yeah, yeah. you gotta Investment come back banks. to but jp morgan too there's a, a few chase of them. Is jp morgan that's who i meant goldman uh, sachs uh, wells fargo wells fargo go. was the other one but they're like you have to come back to the office right so for or especially for women that are home taking care of the kids working from home was a huge help because it's like they were there working, taking care of the kids. Plus, they can still generate the income and everything. So they saved on childcare, and now they're well, making some money. And also, money. now you add like they're starting to like municipalities and cities across the nation are starting to implement more restriction because of the new Delta variant uh, aspect of it. Yeah, to where it's like you do have a lot of things. To where it's like this random those math that math right there. Like yeah. fifteen dollars an hour is just over thirty grand a year at, and that's if you work forty hours a week. For every week, for every week there, which we know isn't true, uh, that some people get. So it's like very hard. That's pre-tax. Yeah, pre-tax. Right. It's like if you work forty hours a week every week, but I mean that doesn't include Christmas, holidays, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, Toward the fifteen dollars an hour is thirty grand a year, and then you so you'd have to have dual incomes to make sixty grand a year to take care of the kids, and that's just one kid. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm sure you had two kids, like you're closer to three grand, yep. so thirty five hundred for child care, and it's like. And then you got food, you got housing, you got a lot of things on top of that. It's just like, yeah, it, I can well, see why it's very hard for somebody because like, they're just like, I'm just not going to go do that job then. Well, and then people say, you know, oh, well, it's their fault. They decided to have a kid. Okay, yes. 
But you got to understand how society works. Like if people just stop having kids, there's a Your problem. Your economy dies. <laughs> like, you know, you need the next generation to come in, work, to take care of your ass when you get older so you have benefits and you have other things. You understand? Like if people are not having kids, it it starts hurting future generations. It starts, it starts hurting current generations. It hurts the economy. You have less people spending. You have less buying power. I mean, and that was something that we read in that book, uh, Upside. Um, we read in that book how they talked about like, one of the biggest problems the baby boomer generation has was that Gen X, I believe it was, it, they were too small of a generation. They're like, so they're not going to be able to sustain the social security payouts that the baby boomers are going to need when they well, hit that and age. Here's, an, here's another thing that I think is attributing to this too, is like the baby boom generation, the Gen Xers, they're enabling. So it's like, so we're talking about people that have kids and are going to work. So we're talking about people that uh, are in their thirties and up Yeah. for let's call it just that generation aspect yeah, yeah. to where what about all the 20, the 18 to 30 year olds, kids, people that don't have kids, the 22 year olds, the 25 year olds and stuff like that. Like where are they to fill these jobs? And I really think it's a, and we, I was talking about this, a very big scale mismatch where you have, so, you know, I have forties and 50 year olds that need jobs. Well, the jobs that are hiring, like they're, they take, technical knowledge of computers and how to manipulate these things and work in a whole different environment. We've had discussions about yeah. this in the past where it's like, they, they just don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't see how that stuff works. So it's like, well, you don't fit this job. Well, so you go work for these lower skilled ones that don't pay as the economy doesn't pay as much for, yeah. well, you can't sustain your lifestyle on those lower payments. You need the pay of this technical job that you don't have the skills for that. You got to go get retrained. So for. That, but, we're, like, we're, we're actually going to be touching on that topic. Okay. So I want well, you to hold that enthusiasm. Okay. A little so bit. there's, but, or did you talk on the one about, uh, baby boomers allowing their kids to stay at home? Yes. That is part of it too. Baby boomers. No, that, that's no, like that's my next one is is continuing this topic. Okay, well, another one that, like I said, I think the baby boom gener enables kids to stay home, yeah, allowing their twenty year old son or twenty two year old daughter to be like, oh, they just haven't found their way yet, so I'm gonna let them just live at home. I'm gonna pay for all their bills. I'm gonna pay for all their groceries. I'm gonna pay, not kicking them out. Be like, go be a productive person in society. I this I get this whole find your passion thing. Go, but find your passion on your own dime. Yeah. Like struggle a little bit, realize that you do need to go work these jobs. Cause I think there's several people that are younger generations that like they're, they want to be social media influencers. So they spend all their time oh, doing yeah. stuff like that. Or I was like, Oh, I see it working at a McDonald's or working construction as a job that you don't make much money. I'm above that. And the parents are saying like, well, my child's above that. They're, they're better than that. They don't need to go work that kind of job. They need to go focus on school. They need to go do this. And yeah. even though little Johnny's going to spend that money on beer and partying and stuff like that. Like I saw that multiple times going through college where there was a kid whose mom bought, paid for his groceries. So he didn't have to work for school. What was he doing? He was going to Walmart and have his one of 20 year old buddies going to buy beer at Walmart. And he was saying it was groceries. And so no, like, you had, you had a really good plan when you were young, but, um, <laughs> but I think that is yeah. another thing it's attributing to some of these people like no, but the younger workforce that has these technical skills, a yeah. doesn't have them yet, or two doesn't want to go in and work because they haven't been brought up being able to support their own way. So again, we're going to begin into that topic. So let's go th there. This, this next article was uh, full-time minimum, uh, minimum wage workers can't afford rent anywhere in the U S um, so people working with minimum wage jobs full time cannot afford a two bedroom apartment in any state in the country. 
the National uh, Low Income Housing Coalition out, uh, out of Reach Report Finds. So, okay, the, the name of the report is called Out of Reach. Um, in 93% of the U.S. counties, the same workers can't afford a modest one-bedroom. The report defines affordability as the hourly wage a full-time worker must earn to spend no more than 30% of their income on rent, in line with what most budgeting experts recommend, which is something that we look at. You need to make ten, uh, three, times. three times rent, right? So this year, workers could need, uh, would need to earn $24.90 per hour for a two-bedroom home and twenty. Point, uh, $20.40 per hour for a one-bedroom rental. That's an increase of $23.96 and $19.56, respectively, from last year. The average hourly worker currently earns $18.78 per hour and reports find more than $6 short of the wage needed to afford a two-bedroom rental. Given each state and locality's minimum wage, the report finds that the average minimum wage worker in the U.S. would need to work nearly 97 hours per week to afford uh, the average two-bedroom home. That's more than two full-time jobs. Uh, this, this group is urging the government to ensure that COVID-era emergency rental assistance programs help those with the greatest need. It's also calling for policymakers to create permanent universal rental assistance for eligible households to invest in new affordable housing and to implement stronger rental protection laws. So here's what I, what I was finding because I, I decided to do a little bit more research because they talk about the biggest issue is minimum wage, right? So I did a research about how much of the workforce, uh, what's the age of the workforce that's doing minimum wage. So you have from 16 to 24 years old, they make up 47% of the workforce getting paid minimum wage or lower. 16 to 24 year olds. Then you have 25 to 34 year olds that, that makes up 22% that are getting paid minimum wage. So you have right there, you have what, 69%, 70% of the people that are getting paid minimum wage are under 34 years old, right? So you're looking at that and I'm just looking at when they talk about this crisis and everything, I'm like, most of these are still kids Yeah. that a lot of them, yeah, you should be getting paid minimum wage. You know, you're, you're just starting off in the workforce because what I was curious about is like, are we having people in their forties, fifties, sixties, like a large percentage of them working for minimum wage? Because that's really where the problem begins, right? We talked about last year, uh, last year, sorry, uh, last, uh, episode, we talked about that, uh, that conversation that I had with Dan Francis on millennial peak spending. Yeah. And we are just starting to hit millennial peak spending because they're just starting to hit, um, the the oldest millennials are starting to hit 40 years old so if that's when you're starting to hit peak spending and most of your people that are making minimum wage are 34 and younger like are they really moving the economy all that much yeah. like are they really that is the issue so i don't know i'm asking like what do you think like do you think that these younger people when you're talking about 70 percent 
of the people that are making minimum wage or lower are under 34 years old. How is minimum wage the issue? Uh, well, it's one thing that we've always talked about. <laughs> like, I don't think minimum wage is the sole, just like removing the $300 is the only issue. I mean, I really think it's a, it's a plethora of things where like, because the economy will take care of itself. And we're already seeing it to where higher prices, higher wages are trickling down and it is bringing some people back to work to where like, I think it's a multiple prong issue of everything we've talked about where yeah. skills mismatch, not being paid enough. Um, just pure lazy kids due to lazy parenting and people just not pushing their kids out the door and be like, Oh, I don't want them to feel the pain that I have. So I'm going to support them. Or like eventually that stuff will run out. I was talking to a, a friend of mine that um, he went on a trip to Wyoming somewhere and just went camping and he said he ran into a group of like 22 to 25 year old college, like a group of girls that were just completely lost in their way. And just like, well, they just kind of travel from place to place. They go and live with their parents and they go on long trips and just go and camp very minimalist kind of people, but they had no jobs. They had no aspirations. They didn't want to do anything or they were just lost. They didn't know what to do. They're like, there's, I think, a good subset that are like that. And that's attributed to the way they were brought up and how they were supported growing up and or how they were raised. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, what is the issue? I don't know. And like, when we come to this unemployment thing to where, uh, I mean, a lot of things in the economy, too, we're talking about all this inflation where you're having rising unemployment or very stubborn unemployment that's not falling. And if you start getting inflation rising with that, you have what they thought in the 80s was impossible or the 70s was uh, stagflation, yeah. which is where you have rising unemployment and rising inflation at the same time, where the cure for one exacerbates and kills the other, where it's like, hey, we lower interest rates, inflation takes off, but unemployment drops. We raise interest rates, inflation goes down, but unemployment takes off. So what do you do in that scenario? Well, back in, if the, I wasn't obviously alive, but I hearing what they did. I mean, they just jacked interest rates like drastically up where they chose that, right? It's going to hurt in the short term, but it's going to be overall long term and good for the economy to where you could get that scenario with that to where the, the Federal Reserve and the financial industry is like, we can't have this inflation going to where we're going to have massive inflation and massive employment and we're going to be screwed yeah. to where they got to do something to where what is the answer to fix it? I have no idea. So- I think also, I think looking at what what is the answer, I think this is just, it's going to be a big adjustment period for a lot of people. This is going to be an adjustment period for companies where one of the points that was made too is that, you know, these uh, much longer than needed work hours. I had also seen a headline, I, I couldn't find the article again, but there's people pushing for four hour, uh, four day work weeks instead of five days four days. So it's, it's thinking about, okay, as a business owner, you need people. How can you either become more efficient with less time per person, right? And still pay them a full wage. So now this person can come in and instead of working for 40 hours a week, maybe they're doing 30 hours a week, but they still make 40 hour a week pay. Yeah. Right. And then what other benefits can you give them? You know, do you give them time in the day during their workday that they can go ahead for, you know, uh, what, what do you call it? Like mental health time or something that they can go meditate somewhere, or spa day. I don't know what the heck, because it seems like what people are looking more for is that quality of life. Yeah. It's that what does that quality of life look for look like? Your Google for, model. For, yeah, exactly. That you have those little nap pods and you have, you know, a nice little 
uh, kitchen setup and some games and these things and that things where now it's like, yeah, I want to go work here because it's fun because it doesn't seem like people it, we've seen it in construction, in a lot of areas, right? Where it's like, it doesn't seem that the money is the issue. It's the quality of life that they're getting to yeah. make that money. That's the issue. It's the quality of the job. Maybe they're going in too early. They don't want to go in too early. Maybe well, that's one of our, uh, one of our guys issues was like i'm paying these guys 200 dollars a day and i can't find workers and i'm calling yeah. some of my old guys he goes yeah you're you're offering me more money but you start at seven in the morning these guys start at nine yeah it's like they don't want to work hard and i think that's one thing this pandemic has kind of done is that people are just like you know what there's more to life than just going and making a bunch of money and spending all my time making money to go to work to make more money to just keep going back into work it's like or i just don't make as much money and I get to spend a little more quality time and finding, finding pleasures in simpler things, I guess is a way to put it. Like, yeah. And I was like, I don't need this fancy. Well, shit. Nowadays, anybody can get a fancy new truck for well, and then straight, but I, I think too, what, what's another driving factor? You have social media, I think is a huge driving factor to people's stress and anxiety mm. that you like you, to your point before everybody that's an influencer, right. Or everybody that's crushing it with crypto and whatever the hell, that's like you go on social media, which everybody is on social media. It doesn't matter which platform you choose. People are on there like addictively. So you're looking at this and you're looking at these, maybe these kids or these people that you look at them and you're like, man, this person has, you know, a quarter of a brain. You yeah. know what I mean? And yet they're probably banking so much money because of this. I see them driving a, a new Mercedes. I well, see them going on vacation here. So you look at all that, and I think that kind of pressure and that kind of thing that you look at and you say, wait, and you're 16, 18 years old, and I'm going to go work for Burger King? No. Yeah. No, oh, that's, what, that's been my harp. I know you, you've known this because I'm very critical on social media that I think it, it exposes a lot of problems and creates massive, massive anxiety amongst other people because they see these people, quote unquote, living the life. But when you know, like if you pay attention to what these things are and study it, it's like they're not like the amount of work that they have to do behind the scenes, how fake they can make things seem like they put a bunch of money on top of their mattress. Like, look, I'm killing it in these things. Like, no, they went and pulled all their money out of the bank, threw it on the bed. said, look at all these stacks of green. Like, I'm making. Uh, and like, we one talked to one of our friends recently that, you know, he's also a big investor here and everything he told us how uh, this other influencer on facebook and instagram that's an investor here how he borrowed i don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars so he can front like he's killing it yeah. so he can get a fancy office space hire people and everything you're borrowing money to look like you're making money yeah, yeah it's like these are massively in debt to realize it's unsustainable business model that's like insane and i and then like you and that's why i can't get on social media so much because like i have a problem even though i know that's what's happening yeah. and that these people I've talked to them is like, they are not as happy as they seem on social media. You only no. see the 5% of the time when things are going good. And like, I know that and I still see it and they're like, Oh, I killed it with a saying and it still messes with me inside. Even though I know it's like, I, that's why I was like, I just can't get on it. Anytime well, I see one of those posts, so, like, why are they killing it? And I'm not. And that's like, why, that's why like I, I, where I disagree with you on social media It's not that social media is the problem is that I don't think that social media itself is the problem. It's how we use social media that's the problem. I think the problem falls on us because I'm just, I'm not a fan of blaming other things. 
I'm a fan of taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's my thing, right? Like I, I believe that we should all take responsibility. So if you're going on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, and you're letting these people, these videos influence the way you live your life, you have a different problem. Yeah. You well, have a problem of I, self-esteem. You have a problem of whatever it may be that you need to either go get therapy, go find well, Jesus. I, agree, I, agree, I don't know. But like, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I just think like, it's like everyone is responsible. And I do believe that you're responsible for your own actions in your own life. Yeah. A problem has become like, but it's so rampant across oh, social media to yeah. where it's like, okay. And this is how governments get involved where it's like when it's a problem, the public sector can't figure out and solve for themselves. That's how government gets involved and says like, okay, obviously when it's 95% of the people are having big issues like that and having problems, it's causing societal problems. It's like, it is their problems, but it's become such a big problem. It's society's problem. And now it's becoming the social media problems where it's like, you now see Facebook, like starting to regulate these things. And they starting to see like, implementing structures and barriers to like people being on certain times and certain uh, content and being able to look at these, putting these things in place. Cause I realize the detriment it's having on society as a whole yeah. to where so, it's like, I do agree, but it's like, you're not going to retrain 330 million people to take self accountability. You're talking a very, very small yeah, so let, subset that knows how let, to do let's that. Let's take the responsibility away from people and let's control their life. Cause that's what that always sounds like to me. You're saying people are, too dumb, too lazy, whatever it may be, to take control of their life. So now we, the government, need to step in and take control of your life for you. Well, look, I mean, look how the interstate system was built. The states themselves were too dumb and too inability to okay, create interstate. interstate. But that's what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> there's a big societal problem that the private sector I can't understand. solve themselves. So government gets involved and no, starts who working says to create it. The private sector can't solve it. Like, I believe, I look at the other side, I believe we are solving it. It's just. Yes, how? during that period of time, we're going to see a lot of bad shit. But what, 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 how are they solving it? Because we're seeing those things change. We're seeing that people want more quality of life. No, no, so, I'm talking social media. And, and like, well, what? that's what I'm still on is like, how is social media solving No, 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 problems? I'm not saying social media. I'm saying society because you're saying okay. society can't solve it. So the government I was talking about so- solving the social media aspect of people living, getting those like addicted yeah. and de- depressing things being stuck on social media and yes. having those things. So that's yes. what I'm talking about. But that's what I'm saying. That, what that's creating is an, an expectation of what your quality of life should be based on the crap that you're seeing on social media. That majority of it is fake. Right. So social media is promoting all of that because people are promoting all of that. So you're saying that's the issue. It's people's ability to want that. They want that as they see they're like, oh, I I see this person making $10,000 on YouTube every week. And like, I want that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I want I want that income and the ease that they show that their life is. They go out and just have fun and pay thousands of dollars to do it. Yeah. And it's like, that's what they want. Yeah. But what do you, why are you saying that the government needs to come in and control that? How, how do you expect the government to control that? By doing what? I mean, you already, see, you, well, you already see them trying to do that. Like one, breaking up these companies to where, I mean, that's debatable whether that's going to have a good thing or not, because the profit model of these companies is to have eyeballs. So you need people on there showing like the Mr. Beast guy as like, he's out there just spinning a freaking five hundred thousand dollars on a fireworks show and then bragging about it to where you have people that like well i want to be able to do that aspect of it and i think that in itself is the issue is you have people 
I don't know how they control it or what they do because the profit model is around eyeballs and you need people showing off these things to get people addicted to it. What I'm saying is like even it. that addiction, the overall society is starting to adapt to it. It's starting to uh, make changes according to it. How can you it? say they're adapting to it when you have adolescent suicide rates exponentially increasing and they contribute it back straight back to social media and the depression they get from not getting likes on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter because followers. That, well, that's the problem with anything, right? Like you can't talk about such a massive topic that encompasses so many areas and then pull out one data point that's going to prove your point. Right? Well, it's not, so it's like, not just one person. Suicide like, rates. Okay, yes. Depression gone rates, up. alcoholism, anything. It's like a lot of like people are more depressed by using social media than after the not using social media. Well, people use more more alcohol because they were forced to stay home. So should we ban the government for shutting down the the economy? Oh well, yeah, everyone agreed with that. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is like there's a lot of unintended uh, situations with a lot of things. And again, going back to the suicide rate, while yes, it is a hundred percent terrible. I I completely yeah. agree. I think it's horrible because this is something that I've spoken to my wife about a lot of times. Is that back when we were kids, right? You would get bullied. And you go home, that was it. Like, the bully stayed at school, right? Like, that was it. Now you go home, the bully follows you. Because yeah. they're on your phone at all times. Yeah. They're, you're everywhere you go, you're seeing all this crap about you, right? So now, this is where I believe we need to take some responsibility. If the government's going to intervene in any way, they need to intervene more in a psychological way of saying, like, you need to have self-esteem. You need to understand, like, I believe giving kids a cell phone, you know, under the age of, I don't know, what, 15, 16, is extremely dangerous. Or it's a smartphone. You get a flip phone. It's like, exactly. Yeah. You can get a flip phone. You can text. You can call. Right? But getting a smartphone with the powers that these phones have and then the inexperience, the underdeveloped brain, the underdeveloped everything that you have at such a young age and how easily you are to, you know, influence you, to manipulate you, to piss you off, to get you sad, how easy it is at those age, you're giving them the weapon. Yeah. You, the parent, are well, giving and them I the weapon. I think it's like, to your point, uh, your wife put on here, is I think it's a something, well, uh, I think it's still something that is very new to society, which I agree it's less than 15 years old, or it's right about 15 years old, uh, and has to figure out how to use it, how we teach our children to use it, etc. So education does need to come out towards the adults that grew up when social media came out, like your younger millennials, yeah, because it was invented by older millennials, uh, like are now starting to come at age and have kids. And I think it, a lot of it we talk about, the problems can be solved when it comes around to education, to educating people of the dangers of wh how this stuff affects childhood psychology yeah. and things like that to where it's like, that is where the government needs to step in to treat it at its cause of like social media is inherently or is bad used in the wrong way so in the wrong hands. Let, let's look at it this way then. Let me put put this point across then. It's it's bad for your health, right? Let's look at cigarettes, um, you know, drinking, all these things. Why don't we put an age requirement on when you can create a Facebook account, when you can create an Instagram account, when you can create a TikTok account? Where it's like you cannot be on these social platforms until you are 16 years old, 18 years old. You are no, you are not allowed on these platforms well, as think, a child. Well, I think well, they need to enforce because you do like you can't at nine years old you can't create a Facebook account with okay. your birthday. 
or, or 10 years old, you can't. Like, I think there are age requirements, but you can lie. It's pretty easy to lie. Well, I think so like, well, you need the, to have like, a, there's a need to be more secure. If, I think yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be more security around people being able to sign up for these accounts. Yeah, because if you make it that way, then now it's no longer on the parent to not give their kid a phone and then be that, you know, that asshole parent that has the only kid in the school that doesn't have a phone yeah. and the kid feels like a loser or whatever. Like your kid could have a phone. It's just every kid in that school does not have access I to social that, media. That, that might be a solution to where it's like, because it, it, it's the under. There you under, go, <laughs> Biden. Got your problem solved. That is, that is a... Uh, you said like the the um, underdeveloped brain and not being able to know how to handle these things. Yeah. So it's like we all know alcohol and cigarettes are physically bad for your body, especially the younger you are, yeah. like, like under twenty one. So like, why isn't social media the same thing, but for your mental health? Yeah, I think that is a, 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 a something that more security around that. And I think that is something they're trying to do. It's like protecting children. Uh, from these things we're like yes it is a two-pronged thing where the parents need to do something about it and teaching their kids how to handle these things but it's also it could be from the government's aspect making a social media come to me like look you can't allow these kids on these things you need to protect these children from the predators out there trying to prey exactly. on the the the, the young underdeveloped well, not brain. even I, I honestly i don't even believe it's is the predator to the level of predators just that i think like a lot of the predators are kids themselves Kids nowadays, because of social media, they're some of them that are like really freaking mean. You know what I mean? Like I look at some of the stuff that some of these kids do to bully each other. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a kid that if I saw him, you know, if I was picking up my son from school, I might hit him with my car. You know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> you're not going to be missed. Just kidding. It's a joke, okay? John doesn't, I, I, John doesn't drive to school. Yeah, no, I don't drive my kids, okay? So it, it was a joke. But, um, <laughs> but it is one of those things that like kids are very mean. But if you limit the ability and are there, are there kids that are going to find a way around it? If you put the right parameters in place it's going to become very freaking hard to do so, right? Where you need to prove some form of ID that proves your age. Oh, for and sure. It's you, like you can land. I was like, I just look at technology. It was like, they were able to take human beings, launch them 350 miles into, or however many, four many miles a moon is away yeah. and bring them back to earth with nothing more than a freaking power of a calculator. Or it's like, we can figure out technology like in a way, yes, it's yep. always going to be, there's going to be people trying to get in front of just like malware, spyware. Somebody's always on the cutting edge trying to prove, but for 95% of the masses, I think they could create a way to protect and garner that well, aspect of it. I had a, you know, I was reading right now, Tommy's comment that he says people becoming less tolerant of delayed gratification, less able to process the abstract, less use of the long-term shortage and retrieval hemisphere of the brain less working body of knowledge so i recently this week i interviewed uh sharad meta he's the ceo and founder of re simply that's a crm that we use um and one of the things that i, I loved about the interview that i just i wasn't expecting it to go that way but we talked a lot about mental health and, and stuff like this and the biggest topic with all this was how he doesn't one he doesn't have email on his phone he doesn't have social media on his phone, right? Any of those things, he needs to open up a computer to access because he's like, email, there's never anything urgent. I have my times that I communicate with my team. They know those times. So the team needs to have those things ready for when I communicate with them. I don't need to be on call 
24-7. And then the same with social media. He's like, social media, I jump on purely to run my business, right? He's like, I don't jump on for the social aspect of it. So what that's allowed him to do is have so much mental clarity, so much more flexibility with his own brain and mind that he's able to run multiple business, yeah. build his investing uh, a portfolio to like 50 something properties and they're all free and clear. I mean, he has an insane rental portfolio. He has an he has an insane business that runs like pretty much automated because he has all the mental ability to do so because he doesn't get caught up with all these things, right? A book that we read, Deep Work, excellent book, excellent uh, points in there that I'm going back and reviewing because I need it. Um, but they talk about all of those things is the ability to disconnect, the ability to, we keep training our brain to want gratification faster and faster you know, instantly at every single second. And whenever we're doing something, even if you're in the toilet taking a dump, you need to be on TikTok. Well, right? I mean, I just noticed so, that like as well, uh, like you're just sitting there taking for a dump on TikTok. No. Oh. Uh, if you're just sitting there waiting in line, the urge to grab your phone and open up and look at something. Like it, is, it is. And I noticed I'm like, fuck, or stop at a red light phone. Like, it constantly to where like you just saying, and it was like, yeah, there these last several like weeks, months, you notice it. Like if there's like a second, a fraction of a downtime, let me just check something real quick. And then 15, 20, 30 minutes go by. And you're like, I just wouldn't need it like two seconds. And yeah. now I got just lost 30 minutes of my life to these things. And it, it, it is very hard. And it's like, it's very, very hard to do that. But I, I increase doing a barrier of entry does, make it harder for you like if that half second's not there like well I, I look at it like how hard it is for us even though we essentially like i didn't have my first smartphone uh, like in, in my 20s until my 20s i didn't have my first smartphone right uh, which i remember my first smartphone was actually a blackberry um and this was when i was living in spain so it, it, that was my first smartphone these kids are having smartphones at the age of 10, iPads, all these things, they know how to maneuver much better than their parents. Yeah. Much, much better than their parents. And their parents think they're slick because they're like, oh, I put this code. My son knows how to work the remote for Amazon Fire Stick. He blocked the account. He created a pin that only he can watch the damn fire. I was like, you're five years old. What the? No, no more TV for you. You're he done. actually locked you guys yeah, out or you couldn't his, use He locked HBO Max out, even though he has a kid's profile. I don't know how the hell he did it. But did he, he actually know the pin to unlock it? No, he didn't remember the pin. It was a process. Um, so he put whatever. I think he did it accidentally. But that being said, like, he was These exploring kids. settings. You know what I mean? Like you weren't just watching TV and like, no, my, you were screwing with the settings and stuff. one and a half year old, you put a phone in front of him and he instantly knows he needs to swipe to, to make the phone do things. He knows he needs to swipe, not click, swipe. He's a year and a half. You understand? So you look at this and it's like, they can handle the technology. The problem is mentally. They yeah. can't handle And look at us. Again, we, I started with smartphones in the, my 20s. Yeah. And I grow, I have addiction. I told you this morning, I was like, man, I'm addicted to TikTok. Like, I could be on there for an hour and a half, not realize it. Yeah. You know, like, it just, it's something that I can be on. Yeah, it's like it's designed for the, like I said, it's a perfect app for an ADD where it's like it's constant feed of entertainment for just one swipe, one swipe, Instant. double tap, like with one finger, you can have an hour long entertainment. Yeah. And it, it keeps you and it's, it's just boom, boom, but it's not like watching a movie where you get to a boring scene and you start. 
Well, even then, off, e- even then, right? You're watching TV. I, I see it even with my wife. Like, we're like, hey, let's watch the show. Yeah, cool. Well, we turn on the show. We're waiting for the, you know, credits to roll through or everything like that. She's on her phone until it starts. And, it, and even then, she's on her phone probably until like the first minute or so the, the intro of the show is over and then gets to it. And it's, it's just those habits that we've formed. Lorenzo you know, puts on here, my five-year-old tries to swipe any screen. <laughs> yeah. Why won't the TV go? Oh, yeah. They, it's something they go to the TV, too, and they're like, the TV's not working. I was like, yeah, eventually. But I don't know. And so when you talk about unemployment, when we talk about all these things, kind of like recapping what we talked about earlier, is you're, the world is shifting. People are changing. The expectations people have of just, hey, I'm happy to have a job that I get paid and I can come home. That's no longer enough. People want more. People want more quality of life. So as an employer, as somebody that needs people, you need to think about it that way. You need to think about what can I do with my business, with my company that I can make it more attractive for people to want to work for me or flexible hours. You know, we've tried that before where we say, hey, I don't care what hours you do as long as the job gets done. The problem with that is that we saw that they also do need structure because when you do that, then nothing gets done. It's a, it's a, there's a hybrid model to it yeah. uh, somewhere. Or it's like, that learning curve. Yeah. That's going to be a challenge. It is for sure. For sure. So with all that being said, we are pretty much at the top of the, our two hour show here. So if you don't have anything else, I think uh, we will call it a day. Okay. So... Thank you all for watching. Make sure you are part of our texting community. Hit that like button. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, like. Join that texting community because we share uh, tips and everything in real time of everything that we're doing. Uh, to do so, just text info at 210-794-9898. And you will get a, a text back of all the different little groups that you can join within the community so you get alerted. Um, with that being said, we're here every single Friday, 8 a.m., Texas time, talking about the trends, the news, everything that affects you and your business. This is the best business podcast you're ever going to listen to because we don't talk bullshit. We talk what really affects you. We awesome. So with that being said, guys, thank you all for watching and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye.